They who strike the writer's fear, pages blank and infinite, never turned by the reader's hand, never pictured, painted, planned, yet threatening all our worlds like violence, that is, absence, and solace, and canvas, and patience. Your words, as always, have stirred my soul. <laughs> Aaron, thank you for sharing. Thank you. Perhaps I'm too much of a fan. I feel like I probably yeah. seem like bias. No, my, my poems are mediocre. But um, <laughs> just to introduce the episode and indeed the new series that we're starting, Woo! this is the first episode in our new semester in Soocene all about storytelling. So this is the third season or semester that we've done. The first one was about degrowth. The second was about education. And the third one will be detailing and exploring and discussing the broad topic of storytelling in the solar scene, which is one of our favorite things to talk about in the whole wide world. We, should I say, we were originally going to just do art. Yeah. However, art, when you begin to think about it in the context <laughs> of creating the ideal world, bit broad. So right. we decided to split it into segments over the years as we ideate the ideal world here on solar scene. And yeah, so we're starting off with storytelling. So this can be movies, storytelling through music, storytelling through a landscape of architecture, yeah. and so on. We'll really dive into it over the episodes, but I'm really, really excited. This is all we do, all we talk about. <laughs> so it's probably going to be a bit excited. Yeah, well, hopefully it still sounds listenable. Mm -hmm. For all you listeners who are brand new to the podcast, so a scene, as we mentioned, is kind of our fictional or rather imagined future which is a time where all of the unsustainable and ugly and just <laughs> um, bad kind of structures and systems are today of today are fixed mm. the podcast is structured in a way that we enter each episode with a couple questions we spend the episode discussing them and then we come out of each episode with a couple more questions mm -hmm. to discuss in the next week and that way it just keeps going all under a single topic and this here is storytelling. And the first question that we have started with is, which story is the best analog for the current times? Mm -hmm. But even before we get into that, <laughs> because I already forgot, uh, you can mention it if you want. Yeah, so normally when we do each semester, so far we've released a zine as a companion textbook. They're very small, but tiny little textbook to accompany the semester because our tagline for Solacene is beautiful, sustainable, and tactile. So on the podcast, we often try and discuss beautiful and sustainable ways of being to inspire us to make today a little bit more like the Solacene. And tactile, because this is audio, we wanted to release something physical. But for this semester, because it's storytelling, it really is a bit more artistic. And I think the series is going to really take form as we go on and not just have a beginning form like the other ones did that we could publish in a zine, we're going to release what we're calling field notes, which will be, if you sign up through, there'll be a link in the description, a Google form or something to give us your email, we'll share our field notes with you. Field notes is, yeah, the idea. So it'll be poems, it'll be pictures, it'll be other artists we find inspiring. And hopefully as the weeks go on, We'll collaborate a bit with some other people is my hope. Yeah, it's, and um, I would say it's less tactile than the zine, of course, because yeah. it's a digital, it's an email kind of letter that we will send out every week. Mm -hmm. But maybe what we've traded in tactility, we've gained in accessibility. Yeah, and collaboration. It'll be free. Yeah, it'll be free yeah. and just easier to get. And there will be more of it than there is in a small zine. Yeah. And our hope is that like perhaps at the end, there'll be something physical we can release to yeah. share with you. It's really, as I said, it's going to take form as the semester goes on and we'll likely return to the zine format in the next semester. And if you want to know more about Field Notes, there will be an episode coming out, small episode coming out probably this Thursday or Friday mm -hmm. when we release it. Yeah. So this is just a little sneak preview. Yeah, I'm literally so excited because I always want to like emailing people <laughs> who listen to the podcast. So this is going to be a weekly excuse to send out emails. Love okay. it. <laughs> The first question, which story is the best analog to today? This was weirdly challenging for me because mm. heard of a, I've heard a couple stories in my life. Yep. I have experienced a few days of my life. So it was hard to nail down one exact story and one exact part of society. So, of course, I did two. I also did two. <laughs> um, 
So we both kind of cheated on that question. Mm-hmm. I kind of did one that is like meta, as in which story is the best analog for the current times with regards to the storytelling of the current times. Mm-hmm. So it's about stories. Mm-hmm. And I did one that is a little bit more about identity and society. So I'll start with the first one, which is about storytelling. Yeah. And it came to mind instantly as soon as you came up with the question, which was Peter Pan. Which I know is one of your favorite movies. It's true. Um, the animated one that is, the Disney one. And there's a few reasons that I chose Peter Pan, but the first and the most prominent was just that I do believe in fairies, that part mm-hmm. with Tinkerbell. And I learned that that's actually a, a not a scientific, but a sociological phenomenon. It's called mm-hmm. the Tinkerbell effect. And that's a term for things that only exist when we believe in them. Mm-hmm. So that's what I thought would be uh, interesting to talk about on the solo scene because I have always thought that like a concise way of summarizing what this podcast is and indeed like what I like to do with my life or would like to do is to just be the people saying we do believe in fairies (laughs) because it's like um, Tinkerbell's losing her glow. That's what happens, right? Mm -hmm. She's in the jar. Yeah. I feel like Tinkerbell's in the jar right now. Yeah. No, I agree. I was thinking a bit about like why we're doing this series, which we touched on a little bit like, because we just want to, basically. But there's also the fact that when you look at the world and the stories they're telling, you can kind of tell the state of people's consciousness, the state of the environment, the state of politics. And I feel like right now, as you said, Tinkerbell's in the jar. We're telling postmodern art. We're telling postmodern stories. It's really corporate movies and so on. And I feel like, yeah, as we begin to imagine the type of stories told in the solo scene, the fairy will be unleashed. There'll be a bit more... (laughs) oh, this is a good time. These people were happy when they're looking back on the solo scene people and so on. And yeah, I feel like we're telling a lot of stories as well that are like, you can't, you can present the facts, you can present a case study, but you need to have the magic in there in order to be able to get across the the actual emotion behind it. You can say, yeah, the climate's increased by one degree in the, since... Um, since industrialization, it's like, okay, so we just need to reduce the temperature. That's not hard, but it's just so much more. It's the culture. It's the way people are. Yeah. <laughs> so I had this image of Tinkerbell in the jar and us mm-hmm. saying we do believe in fairies. But then when I actually came to kind of elucidate some of that metaphor and asking what does that actually mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so what are the things that maybe people don't believe in that we espouse and so on? One of them I thought was human goodness. Mm-hmm. I feel like, um, and a lot of this has come with the internet and like the second awakening of self-awareness that we've kind of undergone as a society where mm-hmm. um, now we're always exposed to bad things. And we talked about mm-hmm. this a lot on the podcast and I think people know it intuitively. Um, but what what else do you think aside from human goodness? Maybe like a future? Yeah. As I mentioned on a previous episode also, I spent some time at uh, university graduations uh, last month just on like a part-time job. And I was listening to a lot of the speeches and some of the language or a lot of the language was so almost defeatist, like mm-hmm. so pessimistic and so dark as to be defeatist. And I was like, this is funny because convocations typically you picture it being the opposite, very um, yeah. almost annoyingly saccharine and light and uplifting mm-hmm. and want to be inspiring. But this was like, you guys, um, good luck out there. This is the last <laughs> This is the last, yeah, there was, there was chance, a sense of yeah. that. Yeah, there was a sense of last chance to win. Wow. Um, (laughs) How else is the fairy in the jar? Yeah. We've also just, it's almost like we don't allow ourselves to indulge in any goodness that we do see. Oh, yeah. Because it feels like we don't deserve it, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, you're walking down the street, you're like, oh, this actually is a nice day. This actually is a really nice art installment down on the street. This really is a nice moment. But I feel like, me personally at least, last couple of years, especially since the pandemic, I've been having a hard time letting myself just actually be happy because there's so many dark things happening in the world that it's very challenging to just have that lighthearted childlike wonder that I really, really want to have and almost need to exist. But I feel like we don't let ourselves because we're afraid not afraid but you just feel bad no that's definitely true again i think it comes from the news a lot Mm -hmm. and the internet and mass media in general 
there's a lot of those kind of personality things. And I'm going to get into that a bit with my story about um, identity. But just speaking about like structures or society, I think with mm -hmm. the Tinkerbell effect, an obvious one is money. I think that's mm -hmm. something that young people love to, um, I've heard young people love to really point out like, you know, money isn't real, right? You know, mm -hmm. that's just a thing that everyone buys into, as in it's a prime example of the Tinkerbell effect. And it's like, yeah, that is true. No, but we do believe in it and that's, yeah. <laughs> it works or it's, it seems to be working and um, not to not to cast any value judgments on economics or capitalism or anything that in the last, say, 10 years, people have become very disillusioned with to the point of saying this doesn't work, this doesn't mm -hmm. exist, this is a myth, is a common one as well. Yeah. But I think often when we say about these things, like capitalism is, is an important one, like for young people, well, that's broken, that doesn't work. So basically, a lot of people have stopped believing mm -hmm. in that which is, again, I'm not making a judgment on that, but there's nothing kind of filling that gap that they do yeah. believe in often. I think it's just similarly at these universities, um, there was a lot of criticism of the institutions themselves, of the university. Mm -hmm. And I understand that. I understand why. I'm not saying it's all unfounded, but I'm saying what does it mean that every single thing is called into, not even into question, but into disrepute after, yeah. say, hundreds or maybe even thousands of years Religion is another one. I think mm -hmm. the Tinkerbell story is a clear allegory for religion and faith. Yeah, that was what I was going to say next is we've, for basically all of human existence, all bought into different stories across the right, world. exactly. Which, yeah, when you break them down and say, oh, well, this isn't legit, da 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 I feel like, like you can deconstruct a faith or you can deconstruct yeah, any a... Story. Any story. Any story. That's, yeah. that's what I was trying to get at with, like, the American dream is mm -hmm. a story. Mm -hmm. and going to university is a story like that's a yeah. narrative and if all these stories that have for a long time been the institutions and these structures that can mm -hmm. form our reality i had this other quote which is the universe is made of stories not of atoms mm -hmm. and what i wanted to get at with this point was like it's not just narratives as in from a picture book or mm -hmm. even as you said earlier in a building like architecture mm -hmm. it's narrative that's woven into everything we do yeah like us we graduated middle school then high school um, followed, pursued our passions ostensibly into mm -hmm. university with the hopes of gaining an education and doing this because there was a story told to us that, mm -hmm. you know, and we're the characters and this is the, the path that we chart into mm -hmm. it, which is whatever. I'm not saying that's good or bad, but if everybody all at once or of a certain generation just starts saying, I don't like that story, I don't believe in that story mm -hmm. with, no, with no other alternative, mm -hmm. then there's a vacuum and I think you see a lot of issues after that. I think so. We need to... I think deconstructing ideas is crucial for the progress of humanity. Yeah. Like that's all we do on the podcast is deconstruct ideas. But the reason we created Solacene, the idea of the Solacene as a future place is to construct, to construct something new. Yeah. <laughs> because if you don't, then it's just you're left feeling hollow and you have no identity. And then as like some people start putting these new points along the future storyline, I feel like certain ones might get really popular, if that makes sense. It's like, mm. oh, I have an idea. People can actually, like, we can live in a socialist society. And I feel like everyone who hates capitalism has just clung on to the idea of socialism or even communism without considering the fact that there could be alternatives. Yeah, I mean, if that makes any sense. Those, like, if someone's, like, again, this, I don't want to get, like, uh, to opinion, it's not opinion about <laughs> economics whatsoever. If someone is a socialist and they're a socialist, mm -hmm. but it's the people who just reject mm -hmm. and don't even embrace those things that I'm mentioning. Like ideologies, that's another thing. Yeah. Um, that's another kind of uh, issue with the way that you're accepting stories and narratives, I guess. Mm -hmm. But it's when there is just a void in people's lives, like a nihilism, I guess. Yeah. Um, anyway, another Peter Pan notion that I think might be relevant for today is the Peter Pan syndrome, which okay. is kind of a, a pop psychology term i guess mm -hmm. it's not a real term not a real medical kind of diagnosis and i know this has been talked about kind of ad nauseum of the last like 10 years i would say especially with regards to men you know people say like oh it's the man child who plays video games and his partner is like doing the chores for him and things like that mm -hmm. and again that's kind of neither here nor there but i do think it's a it's a useful term to describe what is happening to all of us i think i think so so Men it's and like women um with regards to hashtag adulting 
So is this like the infantilization of people? Is that what the syndrome is? Yeah, yeah, basically. So it's like we all are basically kids, kids, but not in our world outlook the way that I feel like you and I always say we need to be more childlike. Yeah. We just, yeah, the hashtag adulting has always driven me mad <laughs> because I feel like we graduated high school right when that was like, oh, hashtag adulting, cooked yeah, dinner for I the remember first there time. Were, there were... Um, workshops when we first entered university yeah which i suppose is a good thing because I think there were so. kids who didn't know how to hashtag adult mm-hmm. but that's what i'm talking about i guess yeah it's just like what went wrong it's like cool we can try and fix it put band-aids on it but why are people hashtag adulting we should just be people just be being right just, yeah. be, just be living yeah yeah I, but i was thinking about like anyone who blames the kids is completely wrong about it mm-hmm. um and I, I would even say anyone who blames their parents is, is mostly wrong about mm-hmm. it. It's just this whole system that's interwoven. And it's the fact is, it's just a lot easier to not grow up in those ways today. Like it's, mm-hmm. it takes a really deliberate effort, I think, to to be like that. And it doesn't mean like what we get annoyed at is when people conflate maturity, I suppose it is, mm-hmm. with like wearing suits yes. or drinking or doing those things that are just very, very superficially adult. Mm-hmm. But I think beneath that, there is often these, an immaturity, yeah. Yeah, I think so. It's funny <laughs> because whenever I meet new people, like most, I was going to say most, but none of my friends are married, but you and I are married. And then I feel like when I was, even two years ago, looking at people who are our age married, I was like, they're just trying to grow up too fast. They're just trying <laughs> to like put on a show as if they're adults. But then it's like, if you take these different parts of adulting, marriage, getting your first apartment, cooking dinner, and you're just like, no, this is just existing. That's just existing, right? It's yeah. like, it's not adulting. It's not trying to put on a show. It just, like, that's how you serve. That's how people have, for all of history, survived yeah, is but, by but, taking but, care of themselves. But I think that, again, in a way of not blaming the people, nor blaming their parents, really, their progenitors. It's mm-hmm. the, like, let's say with marriage, there is a... 100% culture like ingrained into people from a young age with regards to dating that isn't about getting married young and uh, mm-hmm. not like this isn't <laughs> this isn't that podcast about like getting married young or whatever. it's just an example <laughs> or getting a home is a better example yeah. because people want to live by themselves for the most part yeah. they can't like that's mm-hmm. a it's a big problem it's an economic problem and this is the way that economics is woven into our stories like yeah the reason I was kind of reticent to mention the Peter Pan thing was because um that blames Peter Pan Mm-hmm. Um, but really, I don't think it is most people's fault exactly. I just mm-hmm. think that we are stuck in this. Like, I mm-hmm. think I have a little bit of it. I think you have some of it. Yeah. I think we all have it. I think and so. Going into this is my, my kind of the other side of the coin. My third point about Peter Pan is Wendy's father. Okay. You know him? Yeah. So he's the one that at the start of the story tells her to grow up. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, you should, I don't want to hear about Neverland and all this stuff anymore. It's, you need to grow up. And he's very rigid and he's very strict. And he basically has no imagination. Like at the end of the story, mm-hmm. I think he sees Pan's boat or something flying in the sky. And he says something like, oh, I I think I've seen that once upon a time when I was much, much younger. So mm-hmm. that's like his childhood. He's remembering it. So it's not a good thing mm-hmm. to completely forget your childhood or have no imagination. But the reason I mention this is because I think the story today is that it's almost a binary choice people feel like they have to be the the man child if you will the peter mm-hmm. pan or the wendy's father mm-hmm. living in an office it's like neverland yeah. or an office where your life is dictated by numbers mm-hmm. and money and your company and things like that mm-hmm. and that's the story and yeah. that's an awful ugly binary <laughs> yeah i was literally talking about this yesterday about people in rural parts of canada because we didn't grow up in the city so i really have no idea how people growing up feel but we were discussing okay you grow up you reach 16 17 and it feels like you have to make a choice to either stay there buy a house get married have kids or you go off and live this artsy life in like a city nearby or like another city in Canada and those are the two choices there's no oh living an artsy life in your hometown moving away slowly working and then maybe buying a house there like it was just it really felt like either the people who are leaving, they're out of here, they're going to go do cool things in air yeah, quotes, exactly. or they're going to stay and yeah, work do, a job their whole things. life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like, it really feels like those are the only two choices when you're growing up. 
And yeah, in the solo scene, I feel like that will not be the case. There'll be much more choices, many more things modeled to us because perhaps even... Modeling is a part of storytelling, right? That's, yeah. That's what it, like, our story is our parents, you know, happily married, having mm-hmm. kids, working, mm-hmm. retiring eventually. Like, that's the story that's told to us. And mm-hmm. so that's what we will live out, basically. Yeah. So a lot more inputs so that people feel like <laughs> they have more choices than just the the nuclear family or the hippie runaway <laughs> kid. Hippie runaway kid. <laughs> yeah. Your story? I don't know what I am. No, I mean your story for the episode. Oh, I thought you were going to say why the hippie no, runaway. No, that's not for the podcast. <laughs> okay, therapy. My first story, weirdly enough, was a kind of similar part of culture that I was critiquing. And it was the story of Jonah from the Bible. Mm. I'm going to pull up the Bible to read an excerpt. Very heavy. So be careful. <laughs> so Jonah is like the, I don't want to say the smallest, but it's pretty much the smallest book in the Bible. My favorite, obviously, because it's short. I had a Bible observation I mentioned just while you're, you're looking for yeah, it. Yeah, sure thing. Which is that in, in the poem that I wrote to, to open the um, the episode, I was thinking, it was born out of writer's book because I thought that was something that terrifies anyone who's trying to write. Um, which is just the blank page and your inability to fill it. But then I was also thinking that it kind of is something that would terrify the reader as well, the idea that Mm. what if there are no more stories to read one day? Isn't that scary? And it it made me start wondering if we are too addicted to stories now, like if if we're too overexposed watching a movie every night or reading a book Mm -hmm. constantly and going from story to story with very little break time in between. Mm. And I don't even know if this is, like this is just a, it was a question I was asking myself. I don't know if it's true that we do this too much because stories, as I say, they form the fabric of the universe and they have done since forever. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's something for next week. Do we have too many? Yeah, that's a good question. Being exposed to too many stories today. Like with the Bible, it was an example because obviously you were raised Christian, so you had a lot mm-hmm. of Bible stories, as people have been for thousands of years. Yeah. Um, but I was also wondering, on the, in addition to the Bible stories, you also had Veggie Tales. I did have the Veggie Tales, and you also had Finding Jesus, the animated Christian version of Finding Nemo. Yeah. Like you had all these additional things that mm-hmm. maybe people for so long didn't have so much. Yeah. So that was just something I thought we could talk about next week. Yeah, that's a good question. And like, yeah, some historical examples was all of the time decorated with telling stories. It feels like perhaps I it think was. it was. That's why I don't want to criticize But it's it. a good question. Um, so basically this story, to sum it up, is there's a man named Jonah. He's a prophet. He is living in history. And God says to him, you need to go to this town called Nineveh, which is so corrupt that people cannot tell their left hand from the right is like the the quote from it and so it's like none of it today no (laughs) (laughs) none of it and so jonah's like no i'm not going these people why would they deserve mercy Mm. basically and god's like because everyone deserves mercy but jonah tries to run away from god as one does goes on a boat and then he's sleeping below deck in the boat he's the only christian on the boat and a storm starts and the fishermen who were on the boat said, hey, weren't you trying to run away from God? This is your fault. They throw him overboard. And then he gets swallowed by a giant fish, lives there for three days. And then is, while he's in the belly of the fish, is praying, hey, I'm sorry, I'll go tell them in Nineveh, whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then so he's spit out on the shore. He goes to Nineveh and he says, okay, in 40 days, God's going to burn down the city. And he's kind of excited about it. He's like, finally, they'll get their revenge. There's no way they're going to repent. I'll tell them. But like, it's kind of fun. And then they actually do repent. They all are like, oh, shoot, we were, we were blind. Like we couldn't see what we were doing wrong. And then Jonah's grumble, 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 leaves the town, goes up on the hillside, excited to watch God smite the town. He's like, there's no way God would let these people, even though they repented, there's no way he's going to let them live so he's just rubbing his hands together god doesn't smite the town he says i've changed my mind and jonah's like you don't change your mind and jonah's just grumbly anyway (laughs) the analog to today i said nineveh is like the young people who have inherited the world today yes and i'll say most people alive today they inherited this issue and it's like we really can't see 
the light. Like we can't see what's wrong because it's so ingrained. There's plastics in the water. There's like, yeah. even if you try to live your very best life, you're in Nineveh, you really can't see. It's a wicked yeah. problem. It's a wicked problem. And then I said, God is like the knowledge of solutions to the climate crisis, but also the mental health crisis, which have like been around. Like they're there. They're offering a solution for years and years. Like we always knew we were making the wrong decisions. Then Jonah's the in-between between the people who are alive together today and the information that's just kind of been hidden for years and years. And Jonah is kind of like these institutions which keep postponing action because they're like, well, I don't really care about the people today. Like, I just want to live my life. I don't want to have to go and suffer. I just want to, I just want to be. Like, leave me out of this. Yeah. Well, for the story that you told, he doesn't even just want to be. He wants Mm -hmm. vengeance. Yeah. In a a sense, like he wants to see, well, Mm -hmm. suffer. Yeah. In a way. So he's just kind of there. And then I was thinking, okay, so in the story, Jonah does eventually go and like, give the information to people and I feel like okay if these institutions decided to give us the information maybe they're afraid that we will actually repent in air quotes it's like that we will actually take the action and then stop consuming the way we are and then Jonah doesn't suffer but I feel like in the analog I'm going to say the institutions would suffer they would all crumble they wouldn't be able to keep selling us Dollarama toys they'd be screwed kind of thing and Mm -hmm. they'd be angry and they'd be like, why did I do that? Why would I bother conveying this information or like taking down the walls that we've built up? (laughs) Because like they're going to be grumpy about it. Yeah. So so they're like the corporations, the media and the government who Mm -hmm. want to keep selling us the, or giving us the disease so we can keep buying the the antidote. Yeah, they kind of want to see us just like suffer (laughs) (laughs) because they're like, oh, well, it's their fault or whatever. Like they got themselves into this mess. Okay, yeah. Uh, Yeah, so that was my analog story. (laughs) (laughs) And then I also, sorry, I had one highlighted portion I wanted to read, which I thought was funny. I'm going to call this the greenwashing portion. So Jonah's on the boat, and he says this. Well, the fishermen say this. Why has this awful storm come down on us? They demanded. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. The sailors were terrified when they heard this, for he had already told them he was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it? They groaned. And since the storm was getting worse, all the time they asked him, what should we do to stop this storm? Throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. So I feel like that is like the institutions when they're like greenwashing, they're saying... Oh no, throw me into the sea. It's all my fault. Like, <laughs> oh, poor me. But Jonah and, did mean it though, right? But then he was saved. And then he. <laughs> <laughs> so it's almost like they can throw themselves into the sea. They could be like, oh no, we are the issue. Like, Shell can say, let's get green or whatever. But it's like, you need to actually go and do what you have to do. Like, Jonah mm. was still running by. So we're on the boat right now. Yeah, the we're on the boat. on the way. Mm hmm. Shells need to be need to be chucked into the ocean. Yeah, and then rescued, and then actually say, "Oh, we shouldn't have put up these walls in front of this information released in the '70s about climate change." Okay. Yeah. So that was that was my first story. I like that. Thank you for bearing with me. No, that was good. What's the organism of the week? Okay, so the organism of the week. I was thinking, I didn't really talk to you about this, but since we alternate the organism, again, for people who are new to the podcast, instead of doing ads, because we don't have any sponsorships, Mm -hmm. well, also because we like organisms. We do. We do an organism of the week. So we say this episode was brought to you by, and then we pick an organism that we like and that we want to feature. And (laughs) I thought that for this semester, we could call them something like the icons of storytelling. So we pick however long the episode, the series lasts, like, 12 or 13 or 14 episodes, we have this many. It's like a Rushmore. Okay. And each one has a reason. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Okay. I hear you. So for this one, it wasn't... <laughs> Actually, I have two images. Do you want to start with the... I'll start with the, the funny one. No, I'll start with the lame one, actually. Okay. Um, so you'll recognize it, probably. Bear. Right. 
I traced the image, I have to say. I was saying to you earlier, you opened the Pandora's box because in last week's episode, you just printed a photo. It's true. So now I'm taking any... Uh, Liberties any, you want. Yeah, any shortcuts. So this is a brown bear. Yeah, it's the grizzly bear or brown bear. This is this exact one is from the California flag. Yes, that's what I thought it was. That's why I traced it. That's <laughs> why I got the idea because I thought that that kind of iconography in Canada, we see it most often on a license plate. Mm-hmm. And I always remark on it because I think it's a really nice looking flag. And a it nice is. looking license plate. Um, that's a part of storytelling as well. Yeah. We have a leaf, they have a bear, they're called the Bear State. And I was looking into the history of the bear in California, and it has a very long, very long uh, and <laughs> complex history with regards to multiple different flags and rebel groups and just mm. different like political breakaway stuff like that, which is not what the episode's about. So I'll just say this is, to be precise, the California grizzly, mm. a.k.a. a subspecies of the brown bear, a.k.a. Ursus Arctos Californicus. Cute. And it's basically just a brown bear, mm-hmm. of which there were something like 80 to 90 different subspecies of when people first came, uh, Europeans, I should say, first came to North America. Mm-hmm. The California one is now extinct. Um, <laughs> it, went extinct. Just... it went extinct because of hunting for pelts, and also they put these little poison traps out into the wild. <laughs> And also, they were staging fights, bears against bulls. Um, and that's erroneously often where the stock market terms are attributed to. Mm. You know, bull market or bear market. People often think it's because, what is it, bulls uh, hit up and bears swipe down in mm-hmm. the fights. It's actually not true. I just thought that was a fun anecdote that I read. Um, yeah, when they first came, when the Spanish first came to California, there were about, in the 1700s, there were about 10,000 bears there. Okay. Um, now there are none of the California grizzlies anymore. They, brown bears, this is just in general, mm-hmm. eat plants, including seeds and grasses, which I didn't know they ate any plants. Berries. I know they ate honey, but I didn't know they ate the seed and the grass and all that kind of stuff. Um, and also animals, they weigh quite often over 1,000 pounds. Wow. They have claws that are four inches long. Oh my They're goodness. just very big, big boys in general, mm-hmm. big girls too. Have you ever seen a bear in real life? No. Well, I, actually, I did see one in a zoo. It was a black bear, and it was probably one of the saddest images I've ever seen, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, zoos are tragic. But sometimes you can trick yourself into thinking they're enjoying it. This one just looked sad. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, my other image um, hopefully will cheer you up a little bit more. Oh, wow. Hopefully this one can be seen. This is one that I didn't trace. I really tried my best to to sketch it out, to draw it. It just looks like it's wearing cool shades. Yeah, it, it does look like it's wearing sunglasses. I'm hoping mm-hmm. that the camera picks this up. Um, and it also looks like it has kind of some five o'clock shadow, I think. Yeah. It looks a little bit like it'd be in a jazz bar, mm-hmm. playing a saxophone. Yeah. <laughs> it has the, uh, the shades and the five o'clock shadow. Um, this drawing is actually not just a generic bear. This one was called Bart the Bear. Bart the Bear. Yeah, his name was Bart. Um, excuse me, not Bart the Bear. This is Bart the Bear 2. Oh. And what I found really funny about this guy was that it's not Bart the Bear the second. It's just Bart two. Okay. <laughs> As if he was like a product. Mm-hmm. Um, the original Bart the Bear, like this guy only just died in November of last year, which is why I wanted to pay tribute. Okay. He was a famous Hollywood bear. He appeared in many uh, different shows, which I always okay. find it funny when you read like an animal's filmography. Like he has his own mm-hmm. Wikipedia page. People can check it out if they want. Good for him. He was in Game of Thrones mm-hmm. and he was also in We Bought a Zoo. Which I just found, okay. I find that really funny, like the idea that he has the poster and he's really proud of that one. Mm-hmm. The movie with uh, Kevin James, I think. Yeah. Um, he was eight foot six. Mm-hmm. He weighed 1,400 pounds. And so the original Bart, he was just not related okay. at all. He came long before, but they just called this one Bart too. <laughs> and he is survived by his sister, Honeybump, which I thought was funny to mention. So Bart and Bears. Um, bears are obviously a very common motif in fairy tales and also in modern stories. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite like bear, bear story? I like Little Bear. Yeah, Little Bear, that is nice. Yeah, Little Bear was really wonderful. It was the only show I really watched growing up that wasn't VeggieTales. And I remember my mom telling me a story. I actually, I'm pretty sure I remember the day when I realized what like TV was. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I really, really want to watch Little Bear. I know it's not like... TV time, but I was like, I just really want to watch it. I was sick or something. My mom was like, no, it's on Thursdays at 3 p.m. 
and I couldn't wrap my head around it. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I remember then realizing, oh, this is like a product. I don't know what I thought TV shows Kids were. Kids today will never know that because they no. stream everything. Yeah. Did you ever watch my favorite bear thing? I think is Bear in the Big Blue, Blue House? House. Yeah. Bear in the Big Blue House. I used to love that. That was, was my for life. Young children, right? Yeah. That was a very, very beautiful show i think and i, I really like the bear in it yeah i had the moon right the moon mm-hmm. that like smiled down yeah, yeah. i like that my mom maybe i only watched bear content growing up <laughs> um but my mom recently reminded me of the fact that when i was three she went to florida she like got won a trip with work or something and she <laughs> said she went to the bear in the big blue house show i don't know if it was a disney show but it was must have been universal or something she went and sat amongst all the three-year-olds to watch it like a live <laughs> recording or something just to tell me and I was like very young and she reminded me of that recently she said that's how much I loved you and I was like but why would you do that but she she did that that's how much I loved it shout out yeah so I'm gonna go into my next story which is about plastics because you and I remarked the other day upon the fact that okay you could live your life on an organic farm never eat anything store-bought and still have microplastics in your blood. Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, so I chose the work of climate fiction called The Emissary, which I've talked about before in this episode. It's one of the only climate fiction books I've read. I've tried to read other ones and really disliked them, like Flight Behavior I tried to read recently, and we both agreed that is not not my favorite. Um, And then... But The Emissary, highly, highly recommend. It's 150 pages, even less. Quick read. Quick read. Really, it really makes you face up to some hard realities about existence. So it's set in the future in Japan in this kind of post, not post-apocalyptic, but post-tipping like point, I would say. And so we don't exactly know what happens. All we know is that the soil was polluted and that kids are being born very, very frail and increasingly frail every generation. So it goes through the day in the life of this man, and he's like, we think close to 100, if not like 130, and his young great-great-grandson, who is in a wheelchair, has gray hair, has no teeth, is just like very, very frail. And it's like, we don't like to think about the fact that kids are being born into this situation where they have microplastics in their blood and where they're an orange today. Is equivalent to five oranges 60 years ago yeah and this book is a lot a lot about that and it is fun it's lighthearted, so it's like you don't feel gross after reading it mm. like i feel like most climate fiction you do so it's really just a recommendation to read to make you face up to some of the kind of harsher realities like the medical realities almost of the fact yeah. that if we keep going down this path like literal like the species is going to be biologically affected and i'll just read an excerpt to give you an idea of what it's about so i'll read i guess two those are the nettles everyone's talking about why not buy a bunch to cheer tokyo on yoshiro should have been suspicious when the shop owner whose usual pitch was this tastes really good suddenly asked him to cheer tokyo on as if they were at a baseball tournament he ended up buying a bunch, which he pounded into an earthware mortar then mixed with vinegar. Like, it's just basically, this book goes on and on and is saying, like this page, like nettles were the fad because they figured a way to grow nettles in their hometown because Japan was blocked off from the rest of the world. They weren't importing everything, they were growing it all. And it was all just, like all the food doesn't taste good anymore. It's all very unnutritious. And yeah, this is the other... What I want to read. Searching with bloodshot eyes for fruit for their great-grandchildren, old people wandered like ghosts from market to market. Long ago, only the prices of books and magazines had been fixed. Now the cost of fruit and some vegetables was the same all over Japan. Regardless of whether there was a surplus or a shortage of oranges, the price was set at 10,000 yen. Without inflation, there probably wouldn't be so many zeros attached to the price of a single piece of fruit. So basically, it's like they're eating paste to like survive like there's really it talks a lot a lot about food in this book and just about the fact that the old people as they call them are always like oh this doesn't taste very good but the kids are like resigned to the fact that it doesn't matter if it tastes good it just matters if yeah and they don't know any, any they don't know any better. any better yeah and yeah another part about this book is 
the Yoshiro, who is the great-grandfather, he said, I didn't realize until I woke up one morning and I was going for my morning walk where that the rent-a-dogs are the only animals you see in the city anymore. And it's just like, I feel like we wake up some mornings and it's like, oh yeah, there is just no wildlife or there's no, like you realize something that used to be just a given mm. is gone. And I feel like that happens once in a while to us and it's going to just increasingly happen. And this book, yeah, it's just very, very similar to today, but it's taken to an extreme so that it makes you realize the more minor things that are happening today that are analogous to the story. No, I like the sound of that. And I like that you said it. it's a little bit more uplifting. Because I yeah. think that that's, that is a good thing about the tone of today um, quite often. I mean, we're mm-hmm. always critical of today, but it's good to kind of take your hat off when, the, when it's appropriate. I think we, we are quite good at being funny about things that are mm-hmm. serious. Like people talk about eco-anxiety, but I think I, see, I don't see that very much. <laughs> to be honest, mm-hmm. I see a lot of memes yeah. about uh, climate change and stuff like with regards to this. And I think a lot of medical slash food slash uh, like corporate or industrial uh, production skepticism that people have today, it can be um, often transmitted through memes. Like one of the first things I saw with regards to microplastics being uh, bad for you that sent you and, mm-hmm. and very, very prevalent that sent me down the rabbit hole was um, a meme of like two guys handshaking. I told you about it, or like clapping hands. And mm-hmm. one was like, people know it. I think if you spend time on the internet, it was labeled like, <laughs> me, my great-grandparents, and on me, it was like microplastics. On, on them, it was like lead poisoning. Yeah. And it's like because it's, we've done the same thing, basically. Without, mm-hmm. uh, we didn't learn the lesson whatsoever. It was about to maybe just work things out, think about things before you put it in everything, everything mm-hmm. and everywhere. Yeah. No, I like that story. That's good. Yeah. One more thing on microplastics that made me shiver today. <laughs> For my birthday, I got a recycled polyester jumper, sweater. And then I had black shorts on with this jumper. And then all over my shorts, there were these tiny, like, shiny little <laughs> threads. And then I realized these are tiny plastic mm. farts. I don't know what to <laughs> These will never go away. <laughs> these are just all over me now. But the shame is, the thing about it is it's a really nice jumper. It is a nice jumper. It's fleece. Like, yeah. you only really get fleece from polyester. Mm. And, but yeah, I was like, oh. But this is what you were saying at the start. You can't avoid it. You can't. It's almost yeah. it's almost futile to try and um, change your you know not buy food in plastic wrapping because yeah. it's like well the soil is grown in actually you know yeah. that that kind of thing exactly. My yeah. second story is quite the cop out actually. And the more I think about it, because Fine. I wanted to do for this one unlike with Peter Pan for this one I had the idea for it and I was looking for a story to match it. So the idea that I wanted to talk about was about identity and about the way that our modern kind of uh, crisis of identity has caused us to do various things that I don't think through history we ever did. Mm -hmm. Build up these various complexes and we see a rise in things like narcissism. I mean, I thought about just using the story of Narcissus Mm -hmm. as told by Ovid. Um, But I feel like that's just played out now. I feel like people talk about narcissism too much. Everyone knows it. There's not much to say about it. Um, Narcissus was the person in Greek mythology who fell in love with their own reflection. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, smart, smartphones and selfies and social media, I just, I mean, that just seems a bit trite to talk about. Yeah. But then I just, I couldn't find a myth <laughs> or a story that accurately um, kind of reflected what I wanted to talk about. And I thought that itself was quite telling because mm. you can find a myth for most yeah. most parts of the human condition. And it leads me to think that this is rather distinctly modern. Not, not identity crisis, because even the Bible, as you have already uh, used is, or sourced, is full of identity crises. Mm-hmm. But the specific one that is, what am I? What is Alicia? You know, when you look into the mirror, what is Aaron? Like, mm-hmm. And we, we, we have deconstructed ourselves so much to the point that I think we, I mean, we think it's for jokes, but I don't think it's just for jokes that we go online and do quizzes about which friend's character am I? Or which we watch Seinfeld and we think, which one am I? Like we've, mm-hmm. we've said that to each other. Yeah. And it's like, I don't think, I mean, Seinfeld, I don't think was really in, created with that um, in mind, but because we're, we're just searching for things now, anything to ground ourselves, to base ourselves on, we look at Seinfeld. Another example I had was in ancient Greece and even Jonah did it in the Bible. When someone said like, who is Jonah? He says, I am a Hebrew. I am a follower of this God. Like, 
even before he says his name, because mm-hmm. that's what defined him. That was his identity. And in ancient Greece, they would list their ancestors. Mm-hmm. And now we don't do that because most people aren't religious. And if you introduce yourself by saying, I, who are you? I'm a Canadian. I, people would think you're kind of weird. Like yeah. we just don't do that anymore because, as I mentioned with the Tinkerbell, we almost don't, I, it's not that we don't believe in Canada, that's silly, but we don't believe in it as an important part of your identity. Mm-hmm. Um, those things to a lot of people have been corrupted corrupted or, or you know they've seen th- they see through them mm-hmm. you know, so they think um again not passing a judgment on that because i wouldn't introduce myself as canadian or english or anything like that mm-hmm. um i mean i struggle with this identity thing yeah because they're like, so they're so broad and we like know that now yeah almost like okay you could say yeah i'm a christian but it's like but what on earth does that mean I no, was, but, al- but also um, there's a disrepute in the idea of religion. So mm-hmm. most people wouldn't do that even if they were Christian. Yeah, or like, that's true. I don't know. People, people would identify with so many things through history that we don't really do now. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a problem. When I was looking for myths, one article I found on Pinterest was called 51 Online Identity Ideas. And I was just thinking about that with like avatars and personas. It's like there's a real vacuum of genuine identity. And quite often, I mean, one modern story that I thought I could use was Fight Club, um, which is kind of exposing the idea that today we are what we own. We are what we have. And obviously that's not a healthy thing, but I do think that's the closest to a common identity that we have. Um, Mm. I think about people, you know, deliberately buying logos or buying an Apple laptop or phone because you have to show that that's, what you can buy and therefore that's like what you can be kind of Mm. um i don't really have much of a solution for this because uh i don't know it's a big topic i like to think of it as we are what we do yeah it's something i try and strive for but i mean i fall for logos all the time i own a macbook um just Mm -hmm. like (laughs) think you know what i mean like yeah things like no one's kind of immune to it but i think that's what we should be striving for in maybe a post i am a hebrew uh world yeah, maybe we could find some stories for next week that are good examples of people who found identities. Yeah, positive examples. Outside of... The modern identity. Yeah. I like that. And so is that your story or your discussion? Yeah, yeah that was it. That was, um, it was just this idea that by looking through history, you can figure out how the people were and therefore how we mm-hmm. are different from it. So it's like if you look at myths and there's one that's conspicuously ax- uh, absent, hmm, this doesn't touch someone. I mean, you have to be quite comprehensive. And I, I think I was. Yeah. Um, or even if it's not very celebrated, there aren't very many because they're often quite repetitive myths, even within a culture, but especially across cultures. Across them, yeah. Um, so if there, if there isn't that, if there's just one obscure, then you might think this is a lot more common today than it once was. Mm-hmm. And it just shows that ancient medieval i would just say not even that old like pre-mass media like pre-1900 maybe people had had such different ideas of the self and so i guess for this episode the way of saying it was their narrative of storytelling was vastly different to Mm -hmm. what ours is yeah you even think about like uh, what's it called little women and it's like all the girls and introduce themselves as like the marches and everyone knows who the marches are and they know their stances on politics their stances on everything Mm. and it's like you just say oh i'm a march now if you went and you said i'm a then like your last name who's that (laughs) a what (laughs) (laughs) yeah so another question i thought for next week could be that of intertextuality mm -hmm. like things deliberately um existing almost just to reference other things mm. and especially how the internet has changed that maybe like a history of that but also how the internet has changed it shrek shrek i mean it's not <laughs> it's not so new like people talk about it like it's really a post-internet thing but even the bible has quite a lot of intertextuality mm-hmm. in it and a lot of old texts like that but really how the internet has changed it and also it's it's history because mm-hmm. something i've been doing recently it's a little bit off topic but i was um just scrolling through apple music and looking at new albums and quite often all the younger artists i find more interesting in their like description of the album you know sometimes they do a breakdown of the album like as a whole but also each song Mm -hmm. there was a few artists this wasn't just one it was several different artists for each song they would just say yeah this has shades of x like this is pieces of Mm -hmm. this band from the 80s and they were obscure references but it's like 
I mean, I know that's how art is. Like it's often we take inspiration from this, take inspiration from this, but I feel like we do it much more consciously and more fully all the time mm -hmm. now where almost everything is, this is giving X. Yeah. That's what they say, right? Exactly. That's what the kids say. Yeah. Serving you X. <laughs> <laughs> Just the most unhip people. Serving X. <laughs> okay. So our next question was, since the solo scene will be the ideal future, what will the role of stories be? Yeah. Because there's nothing more to strive for. And I feel like that is almost a silly question, but also a kind of fun thought experiment. Yeah, I would say that's a, that's a fair appraisal. It's both of those things. Yeah. Because the reason it's a bit silly is because it's it's a utopia, but it's still full of humans. Like we're mm -hmm. not creating literal like Eden or heaven, like paradise. Like yeah. there's still humans who still have everyday struggles. Yeah. There's still there's still death. There's still illness. Yeah. Things like that. Um, so that's why it's a little bit silly. But in mm -hmm. terms of being a good thought exercise, it's almost like if everyone was a bit more healthy, I mean, yeah. mentally, and we were all kind of well-adjusted and things like this, mm -hmm. um, and society was, you know, moving in a in a good way. Like, if you don't need escapism, because I yeah. feel like for all of history, we've needed a way to escape. Right, history has been dark. Yeah. Um, then, then what do stories do? What's the point mm -hmm. of them? What do they tell stories about? That's a good... I had a few points. The first one was, of course, to tell cautionary tales. I mm -hmm. think we do that good times, bad times, um, historical cautionary, cautionary tales, fictional ones, it's always good to talk about the bears in the woods. Mm -hmm. And especially as I think the solo scene will have a bit more of a frontier mindset, mm -hmm. there will still be things to explore. And that kind of comes with cautionary tales. There'll be, people will be um, ethical. I mean, I, like anytime, people, <laughs> anytime there's a sense of good and bad, yeah. there are cautionary tales to tell about the bad, but, what happens when you fall off the path. Yeah. So I think that'll still be a part of yep. storytelling. Yeah, I had that as like morals. There'll still be boogeyman yeah, stories. Is what I said, like, you will still be afraid to go in the woods, metaphorically <laughs> speaking. Yeah. Like, you'll be afraid to act in a certain way because you've heard these stories about what happened to these mythical characters or these historical characters. And then I also, along that vein, had like reflection and introspection because I think, like, I mean, the human spirit is so infinitely vast that you'll always want to be inspired to look inwards and to look upon your own history and what you've experienced and stories yeah. that really inspire that yeah in the education semester which i think actually has some overlap into in storytelling which is probably why we've gone from that into this mm -hmm. um, we talked about kind of a rite of passage for kids could be writing a memoir or journaling mm -hmm. it's about how stories can be very educational, but you don't have to be young. It can be yeah. at any time. It's it's like meditation, but we write it down kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That's good. Um, I also thought about this small YouTube channel that I follow um, where the guy recently, um, he, he talks about classical art and a lot about Shakespeare and classical music and generally how things were always better artistically in the past than they mm -hmm. were now. And one of his key points was that art should, he thought, not just reflect reality as it so often does today, but be a, more of a projection of our ideals, like mm -hmm. what the solar scene is. He thought that it should be much more that than it is the reflection of reality. Mm -hmm. He thought that even in Shakespeare's tragedies, there was a, a sublimeness to it that we should be striving for, things like this. Yeah. Um, and I think that in the solar scene, it will be a little bit more skewed towards the ideals than it mm -hmm. is now, that is, because I think now we don't have many solo scenes. Like the solo scene is basically us saying, oh, art's kind of depressing, especially popular art, because mm -hmm. it's, there's no pastorals. Like that genre is just dead now. The idea of creating an idealized world and, mm -hmm. you know, writing stories in it and reading stories about it, which is just a, a beautiful thing, has mostly been relegated to things like kids mm -hmm. programming. So I think that in the solo scene, there will be much more of that kind of nice, just niceness, yeah. you know, ideals. Um, another way of putting this is more people are telling stories of their own solo scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember in first year sustainability, this is my favorite course I ever took. And they said, they're showing us examples of Eden, of paradise, of these basically propaganda that have been put up throughout the last like 200 years about even oh, this is a nice vacation spot. It looks like Eden. It looks like paradise. And they were saying, okay, even like 200 years ago, there were these things, but 
you would go to the vacation spot and obviously it wouldn't look like paradise. It would just be a nice field. It's like what you make of it. And I feel like, yeah, like for literally all of human history, we've been painting this idea that will never exist, but it's right. still Very inspiring to, to and so. valuable. Yeah. And I think it doesn't have to always be backwards looking. It doesn't have to always be pastoral. It can be technological yeah. optimism. Yeah. Climate fiction. What's the word I'm Solar looking punk. for? Solar punk. It can be forward looking. And I think, yeah, the solar scene will have a lot more of that. And my final two points were like creativity and fun will be the role of <laughs> stories in the solar scene. And what I mean by that is like, we're finite. We're going to still be finite in the solo scene. But when you read a story or write a story that is about another place, another time, another person's life even, it allows you to kind of expand your experience beyond yourself in a way that you never physically could because your brain's capacity for imagining things is more than your body's capacity to experience things for the mm -hmm. most part. So it's like you can read a story about someone going on a great adventure and you can go on a great adventure, but sometimes reading the story is like just as good almost. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah. And I think also, I'm thinking about that like that video game. I've been, I don't know why this has been on my mind recently, but with, with video games, there's a there's a like infamous shirt worn by gamers that's like, oh, you think you've lived a life? I've like slain dragons and conquered demons and saved the kingdom more times than you can imagine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so there is a, I guess there's a kind of corniness to that. Mm -hmm. um, stories should inspire but not capture you you know your whole life basically is what mm -hmm. i'm saying no one's on their deathbed like man i wish i played more video games or or even i wish i'd sat down and um read more stories i think mm -hmm. quite often yeah living mm -hmm. stories are separate from that i think yeah and that was a, a point that i had a little bit informed by social media it's just about separating life from arts so we've seen hopefully I think that today we have almost this widespread like performance art lifestyle mm -hmm. that people live. I mean, of course there's the we're gonna go to a nice spot, take a picture just so we can post it, but we're not actually gonna hang out of the spot. Like there's that thing. But also it's just a general kind of sense of posing that I feel like we do. I'm mm -hmm. saying we, like I think we all do it. And I think that authenticity and just realness living life you know really just being here not mm -hmm. posing or whatever is helpful for when you do want to pretend when you do want to play pretend basically mm -hmm. because there's a there's a more of a distinct line between those two things yeah like everyone's doing a kind of what's it called method acting all the time now mm -hmm. i want to be like especially teenagers but as yeah. we said with the infantilization the peter penn thing like adults do this now as well yeah i think so i was thinking a bit about that recently of We've almost like bought too much into the fake it till you make it. Yeah. It's like, oh, I can dress like I'm an influencer, like I'm famous, and mm. then I'll be famous. Yeah. Fashion is a storytelling as well. Yeah. Right? Like a, a quote that made me stop in my tracks that I read a couple of days ago online was um, something like, stop trying to um, dress like something or someone, mm -hmm. just become something or someone. Yeah. That's, that's exactly. what it is, basically. And I feel like because we've like internalized that, oh, if I dress like this, I'll dress for success and you'll be successful. It's like you almost will never know when you've made it. Mm. You'll never know when you've done it because it's so, like, I don't know what the word is. There's a word for it, but it's, we equate success with looking this way. Yeah. But it's like, you don't actually know what it feels like, the work it takes, the actual like the experience because it's all just aesthetics. Yeah. Yeah. Those were all my ideas about storytelling in the solo scene. I had, uh, I guess, two other points. One was about telling each other stories. I hope people in the solo scene do that more often because I think, again, I'll use children because that's just an easy example. It's not that often that I think in parenting now that parents um, are telling them stories either mm -hmm. off the cuff or out of a book. It's quite often that we rely on Disney and such to do it. I mean, that's what happened with me. I just think that's that's what it is now. Like, it's not about mm -hmm. the parents, it's not a, a judgment. That's just what we do now for parenting. And I think, I mean, I love a lot of Disney movies and Studio Ghibli movies and just a lot of kids' movies and stuff like that. But I do think, because, I mean, quite often they're going to be more beautiful than what the parent can just come up with. 
Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to be, they're told by master storytellers. That's why people like it. But there's something about the um, personal touch. I think even when you just come up with a funny story once upon a time, or, or, you know, when your kid's going to bed or something, but also around the campfire, like I think people don't do that very much anymore, just yeah. coming up with ones. And even just, I don't know, between each between ourselves i think that's a that's a fun thing and it's something that i actually kind of admire about theater kids because i always feel like they're always coming up with funny situations mm-hmm. yeah it makes your experience as a human more personalized that's what i was trying to say earlier with i didn't realize that tv shows like everyone was watching them because oh yeah my dad did used to make up a lot of stories and i remember him telling me like he never knew the lyrics to nursery rhymes because his parents never taught him so he just like made them up to the tunes <laughs> so for most of his life it Perhaps even today, he just like has these fake versions of nursery rhymes that he told and sang, and it's kind of funny because that's like a very unique experience. But people growing up today, like people, like the average person, we all have the exact same stories, the exact same histories that we are drawing from, which is cool in its own way, but probably not a very Solacene thing. Yeah, my final point was just that I think Solacene storytelling. I was thinking particularly with movies, but this would be characterized by more genuine authenticity by the craftspeople behind them, the writers, the directors, the actors, even the production design, just the whole crew studio that it comes from, not so focus tested and corporate take written. Take some risks. Take some risks. I mean, not just coming out of an algorithm to make the most money. Mm-hmm. That's kind of uh, shallow, but I think we'll touch on that a lot more I think in so. the series to come. That's kind of the crux of the series. So I'm sure we'll get to it. Yeah. So thank you all for listening. We appreciate you very much. Again, if you want to get a head start in signing up for Field Notes, the link is down below, and we'll be releasing another episode about it later in the week. Thank you all so much. Bye.